Well, today we're going to be wrapping up our series in parenting called Raise Them Up. The reason I called it Raise Them Up is because we're not just here to raise them. We're not just here to help our kids be alive at the end of 18 years. We're actually here to raise them up to something, to lift them up, to move them upward, to live the best life possible that we can give them and prepare them for. Now, last week what we talked about was how we as parents need to live in the tension between grace and truth, that we're always going to be pulled toward one of these two directions. The tension of being um, of truthful, the people who lean towards truth tend to be more discipline, order, you know, consequences, you got to do what I say, rules, that kind of stuff. And grace tends to be more, it's fine, don't worry about it, I love you, I'm just here to make you happy, um, and going all in with, you know, helping kids uh, do what kids do. <clears throat> and, and we are going to be tempted in, our, in the various moments of interacting with children to default to usually one or more of these places. In fact, I, um, we, Abby and I had a couple good chuckles, and we wa- saw some comments and talked to several people throughout the week whose kids were very eager to tell mom or dad whether they were a grace parent or a truth parent. Um, and so they, they know. They know, and they pay attention to this stuff. But yet, as parents, we need both. We are meant to be people who are striving as Christians to be full of both grace and truth, not one or the other. Now, I mentioned the time that we are going to be most likely to slip towards one or the other, tempted to go all in with either grace or truth, is going to be when our kids disobey, when there's conflict, when they uh, fail to live up to the standard or refuse to live up to the standard that we have set before them. And discipline is hard to navigate as a parent. And I didn't talk about it last week, that how do you respond in those moments when they don't listen or aren't doing what you would like them to do. Um, So, you know, there's these questions that we ask as parents. How do I discipline my kids? When do I discipline my kids? How do I make sure I don't over-discipline my kids or under-discipline my kids? Because um, you'd think those would be easy to answer. And here's the thing. If you're not talking about your kid, it is super easy to answer. Because parenting is emotional. And when you're in the moment of parenting, it can be hard to decide and answer those questions. How am I going to do this? And so these are questions that we want to answer. And so today, what I want to do is I want to give two principles, two biblical principles that will help shape what discipline can look like in our homes. And um, these two principles, um, they're going to help you answer all of those questions. How do I discipline? When do I discipline? How do I make sure I don't go overboard or under... um, in, in all those various ways. And so the first principle we're going to look at is in Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. And this portion of Proverbs is written um, from the perspective of a dad just kind of trying to teach his son, pass on some wisdom to his son. And so that's why it naturally starts, starts with, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. So it's a dad trying to teach his son that discipline is not always a bad thing. And he says, for the Lord reproves or discipline him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So this verse, again, speaks of the discipline of God mainly. But what what all these good teachers do is they try to help us understand what God is like by putting it in terms that we can relate to. Um, I've heard people say this is somebody putting handles on on the on scripture so that we can hang on to these important principles and stuff. And so he's trying to teach what God's discipline is like. And he, and he says that God's discipline is like the discipline of a good parent. And a good parent 
always disciplines their kid because they delight in them. And so this is a principle that I think every person should ideally know and, and internalize before they hand out their first discipline, and most of us haven't done this, but it's the fact that delight has to precede discipline. Discipline cannot be born out of anger because your kid isn't listening to you. Discipline shouldn't come from the place of embarrassment or insecurity because your kid mouthed off to you in front of somebody else and you feel like, oh, what are they going to think of me? I better do something about this. Um, Discipline shouldn't come from a desire for your kid to just fall in line and make life easier for you. Discipline has to come from a place of love. Like every aspect of parenting, of good parenting, discipline is coming from a place of love. We discipline our children. It's a task that every parent takes on, and I, don't, and I wouldn't even say eagerly takes on. It's the worst part of being a parent is disciplining your kids. It's not fun. Um, I always remember that old phrase, it's going to hurt me more than it hurts you, you know, and if you ever had a parent say that to you, you're like, whatever, you know, you don't understand. As a parent, I totally get it. It is by far the worst part of parenting, and so every parent, though, we take this task on, not just because we have to, but because we love our kids, and we want to, at times, create consequences for every undesirable, unacceptable, and unsafe behavior so that they can see that bad behaviors and attitudes and and words lead to bad places. We want them to understand the destructive nature of sin. And so when we discipline based in love, what that's going to help us do is it's going to first off help us start to understand or find the boundary between over and under disciplining. Because when you discipline out of anger or even insecurity or whatever, that's when you get to the extremes of not only just over-disciplining, but that's where abuse and things like that come into play. Abuse is born out of parental anger, parental insecurity, not something the kid did to deserve that. It's coming from here. But we can't parent from those things. We can't discipline from those things. And so when we parent and discipline from a place of love primarily and we keep that in check, we are careful with our disciplines to not go over. But also, um, as I said last week, there's some of us, we just tend to shy away from discipline, whether it's just not our nature or um, maybe we're just tired. You know, I I said last week, I tend to uh, have sometimes less consequences on my kids at the end of the day. It's fine, just do it. I'm tired, whatever. I don't want to say no and have, I don't want to go into it. You know, and so that can happen. And so whatever the reason, we can tend to lighten up on discipline at certain moments or shy away from discipline. But love says, I can't do that. I've got to love my kids and discipline them for their good. And so to avoid discipline is not loving, it's laziness. And so love gets us up to say, okay, I can't avoid this, I can't ignore this, I've got to address it for their good. Good. And so disciplining from a place of love, making sure that delight precedes discipline, can help us avoid some of those swings between over and under disciplining. But also, another implication of delight preceding discipline is that discipline is not the main way our kids experience our love. But they receive love in so many other, much more pleasant ways before we ever get to the discipline. And so we need to be snuggling with them on the couch, especially when they're smaller, because I hear they get a little less open to that in junior high. Um, We need to encourage them in their hobbies, encourage them in their interests, in their schoolwork. We should be laughing with them, playing with them, doing things they like, riding bikes, take them fishing, playing tea parties. Eleanor, we have tea parties all the time, don't we? 
Yep. And I, and I get a drink out of this little teeny cup that's got a picture of Elsa or Olaf on it, you know. And I drink nasty, lukewarm water out of these gross little plastic cups because that's what she wants to do, right? And so uh, sometimes me and my boys, we play Minecraft. We play um, different games because it's fun. We want to have fun together. We want to know each other and, and just spend that time together. Um, my kids like helping me fix things. And they come at this um, in those moments like, Dad, can I help? And they, they're so eager and hungry to learn from me in those moments. But guess what? I'm not good at that. I stink at fixing things. So poor them. They come to learn things. And it's like, I have nothing to teach you, my child. I apologize. I'm just putting screws in and hoping it holds. Like, I don't know any different. And so, um, yeah. So they, they, there should be all these other ways that our children are experiencing our love and our delight for them before discipline ever even comes into play. And in fact, if you're a disengaged parent who tends to just not really get too involved in what's going on, um, except when it comes to discipline. You know, I've, I've seen lots of dads who tend to be just kind of lazy couch dad and let mom do all the heavy lifting, and they don't really get involved unless the kid's standing between them and the TV, or if mom finally says, would you just get up and help me? Can't you see everything's burning all around us? Come on, do something. And then dad gets up and comes in and, I told you, and you know, when, when kids primarily experience dad in that manner, that does a poor job of showing love to our children. That gives a very horrible, horrible picture of what love is. And it gives them a misshapen view of love, a corrupted view of love. And as I said last week, it gives them a bad idea of how God views love. There are so many adults today who have a terrible picture of God because of the poor ways their dads showed them affection or did just failed to completely show them affection. And so delighting our kids has always got to precede discipline. Our discipline is not done out of anger or embarrassment or any sort of insecurity, but anger or our discipline, excuse me, comes primarily from love. Now, our second principle is going to take us into the New Testament. Um, not because it's only found in the New Testament, but because the verse we're going to look at today in Hebrews chapter 12 just kind of explains it so well. Um, but there tends to be this kind of myth that the Old Testament and the God you see in the Old Testament and the God you see in the New Testament are two very different beings. The New Testament God is loving and forgiving and gracious and everything's wonderful. And that Old Testament God is harsh. You know, it's almost like the grace and truth. Old Testament God is the truth God and New Testament God is the grace God. And, and that's just not the case. What we're going to see here today is a principle that is found all throughout the pages of Scripture. And so this principle isn't a New Testament principle. It is a God interacting with his people principle. Now, in the section we're going to read from, the author is, again, talking about how God loves his children and God's discipline and trying to help us understand why God disciplines us. And it also gives us this idea of how we should view discipline when we approach our kids. Here's what he says, or the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9. It says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. So he's kind of, again, doing what the first passage did. It's helping us understand God's motivation by pointing us to our experiences. And most of us have had a parent who disciplined us in a way that was normal and okay, and it didn't mess us up, and it led us actually to respect them because of the discipline. We didn't maybe love it in the moment, but it led to us ultimately having a better relationship with them because of 
their ability to love us well with discipline. Um, one thing that I remember, it's one of my earliest memories, and my mom would probably hate to hear me say that, um, but my mom used to babysit, and there's, so there's always kids around, and apparently I was a bit of a biter. And uh, I, don't, I don't remember that, but what I do remember is my mom, I'm sure she had tried every other thing under the sun before it got to this, but I remember standing in our kitchen, looking up to my mom, and her saying, don't you understand what you're doing to people? And she grabbed my arm, and she bit me. And by the way, I've told this story before, and then I've had so many people who were beyond those active parenting years saying, I bit my kid on the way out the door, like, yeah, buddy, that works, um, Right? And so, but it didn't make me mad. It wasn't abusive. She didn't break the skin. It just, she did it enough to say like, oh, I'm hurting people. This is not okay. And, and it, I, I never once thought, what a horrible mom for biting me as I was growing up. Uh, again, she just did it a little bit to show me what I was doing and help me to gain a little bit of empathy for those teeth marks I was leaving on all the other kids as I was apparently pretending to be a cannibal. I don't know what I was doing. But either way, it's saying, you have experienced this. We've all experienced this as parents. At least a lot of us have if we were fortunate to have good parents. They disciplined us, and it led us to respect them. So then he says, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Meaning, we shouldn't reject God's discipline or be angry when it shows up. For they disciplined us, our parent, earthly parents, disciplined us for a short time as, they, as it seemed best to them. But he, our loving, gracious, eternal heavenly father, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So these verses, again, compare the discipline of God with the discipline of good earthly parents. And it teaches that God's discipline is for our good, okay? But how? Well, the two words the passage gives us is it says it brings us and leads us to holiness and righteousness. Holiness and righteousness. That God's goal with discipline is to bring us to a place where we are living in his holiness and in his righteousness. Because when we do things that are wrong, when we sin... What that does is that leads us away from God. It breaks the relationship we have with him and puts us out of living righteously. Whoopsie. It lives us out of living righteously, out of, of living in a way that is according to his holiness. And so when God disciplines us, it's to bring us back into that place where we are living a life that is the best for us and the most honoring for him. And so one thing that we have to understand about discipline, and the most important thing we have to understand about discipline, especially the discipline of God, is that the purpose of discipline is restoration. The purpose of discipline is restoration. And so when we see discipline as a means of restoration, it changes the way that we understand what discipline is, especially from our Heavenly Father. But then if we apply this principle to how we parent, because again, this passage is, is constantly comparing God's actions to the actions of a good earthly parent. If we bring the idea of using discipline as restoration into our parenting, it changes the way that we think about discipline. Because most discipline is not restorative. The way most of us parent is not restorative. It's what the word would be punitive, or it's, it's more punishment. Or, you did something wrong, so now I'm going to make sure you feel some pain because you did something wrong. It's really a lot like our, a mini version of our judicial system. You did the crime, now you got to do some time. Whether that time is you get 
stuck in a timeout chair, whether you get grounded, whether you lose your car keys or you get, don't, you get screens taken away from you, whatever it is, you did the crime, now you do some time. The only difference with the, the house model versus the um, justice system is that mom and dad get to be judge, jury, and executioner all rolled up into one, and we get to kind of decide all that stuff. Okay, but, but when we use discipline simply as a penalty and not restoration, we don't teach our kids what we think we should teach them. Um, often we teach them that if they don't listen to us, they will suffer. That that's the idea, that mom and dad, you listen to mom and dad or you suffer. They don't learn that sin, like, they don't learn the actual consequences of their sin. They don't learn that sin hurts people. They don't learn that sin hurts them. They just learn, I better not listen to mom or dad or I get in trouble. Or worse yet, they'll learn, I better be better at doing bad things so I don't get caught. I better get slicker at sneaking out of the house. I better be quieter when I sneak back in. I, it's just, I better get my friends to lie for me so I get a better cover story. That's the worst case scenario. And so a lot of times we use, we use um, discipline as punishment, as penalty. Um, and, you know, if I'm being honest, sometimes at our worst moments, we, we use discipline as a little more than payback. You inconvenience me, now I'm going to inconvenience you. You broke something I love, so I'm going to take away something you love for a while. You, you embarrass me, so I'm going to embarrass you. And we use it in that fashion. But that's, again, that misses the heart of love that is supposed to come and the heart of restoration that is supposed to come through discipline, especially the discipline that God shows us. But what if, rather than just creating painful consequences for the sake of there being pain, what if we tried to help them see that what their bad decisions did, what they destroyed, what they broke with their bad behavior, and help them put that back together, make right what they have done wrong. Because they need, yeah, they need to feel some pain, and this should be part of it. Let me not take that away. Discipline should always include some element of pain. That verse just made that very clear. You know, pain, discipline is always painful to some extent. Okay, so there should be pain, but it should also help them work to make the situation right with all involved. Because let's think about it this way. Let's say your kid is dishonest or um, disobeys you or is just disrespectful in some way. What's the main consequence of them treating you that way? Well, it, it, it upsets the relationship between you and them. If they're dishonest, it breaks the trust that you have with them. If they're, if they're disrespectful, it hurts you as they, as they say mean things, hurtful things, or just disregard you. When they disobey, it's them failing to honor their parents the way they should. It's all about breaking that relationship when they do one of those things, right? So what should be the purpose of the discipline? Restoring that relationship. Now, I'll just go ahead and tell you, um, you're probably sitting there thinking, okay, what does that even look like? And I'll just say, it, it's not as easy as taking away screens. It's not as easy as saying, well, you just don't get to drive your car for a while. It, it's harder than that. And it requires a little more creativity than maybe what we would normally put into our discipline. But let me tell you, it's incredibly worth it. So let me show you um, a couple examples of what this can look like. And I'm just going to uh, tell you both examples that I'm sharing with you came from Andy Stanley because... As far as I'm concerned, that man's like a parenting genius. And his stories, he's so much more creative than everything I came up with. And so I want to share you two examples of times when him and his wife parented with restoration in mind, not just pain, not just you did the crime, now do the time. Okay, the first one comes when uh, Andy, uh, his kid, one of his kids was older and in high school. 
and he was incredibly disrespectful to his mom. And so um, she was really upset. She cried. Really, it really, really hurt her. And so Andy said he got home from work, and he was just livid. The, the, the kid would talk to his mom that way. And so he kind of let him know that's not okay, and we're going to be talking about it. And he let him sit on it for, I don't know if it was a day or two, um, which, as we mentioned last week, that's okay to pause those punishments and stretch them out a little bit because then they get to sit and think, oh, no, what's my dad cooking up? And they get to dread a little bit, and there should be a little bit of dread and guilt associated with what we've done wrong. So that can be a part of the pain that you're adding into this, connecting with this punishment, right? And so he waits a couple days, and then he goes to his son and informs him, okay, you really hurt your mom by what you did. And so to make up for this, you're going to take your mom on a date, and you are going to pay with your money, and you are going to drive. And the first thing that, first part of this is you're going to go to your mom in just a few minutes, and you are going to ask her out to dinner as a way of making up for what you've done wrong. And he said his son was horrified. He didn't, he said he would have rather had the car keys taken away, uh, anything. He said because, you know, there's, when you get confronted with being wrong, one, is just a, a hurt to the ego, right? It's just like, I don't want to be admit I'm wrong. There's that side of it. But then there's just the embarrassment of, as a high school kid having to take your mom on a date and hoping you don't get seen out with your friends. You know, what are you doing with your mom on a date, you know? Because he was supposed to open the doors, car doors, the whole, the whole nine yards for mom, right? And so he did. He went and asked his mom, would you go, can I take you to dinner to make up for what I did wrong? And so they're in the car driving, and as they're sitting at the restaurant, they're talking, and tensions lower as they talk about a few things and laugh about a few things. And in the natural course of things, he says, you know, Mom, I'm really sorry for what I did. I shouldn't have done that, and I'm, I'm really sorry that I hurt you. And she forgives him, and the work of restoration begins. The work of repairing that relationship begins. And that punishment that started out as painful is something he walks away from almost immediately knowing I didn't love that I was forced to do that, but it was for the good of everything. And it connected what he did wrong with the punishment. It connected restoration with what he did wrong to help him understand. The second example Andy Stanley tells us when his kids were much younger and he and his wife went out on a date and they get home to learn that both of his sons were incredibly bad for the babysitter. And the babysitter wasn't just some like um, teenage girl that they hired and said, we'll give you, you know, 40 bucks if you watch your kids. It was like a family friend. So it was somebody they knew and uh, went to their church and everything. And so she gets home and how are the kids? okay because uh, she didn't want to tell the pastor that his kids were bad you know so she felt awkward but she finally admitted that they what they had done and he doesn't I never heard him tell what they did Um, but they were really sorry apologized and stuff and so the next day when Andy went to work his wife went and woke the boys up and said okay I want you to sit at your little desk in your room and I want you to write an apology note to the babysitter so they did and then a little bit later she comes in she says okay I want you guys to get ready brush your teeth and I want you to get dressed up like put on like nice clothes. And then I want you to grab your piggy banks and your thank you note or your apology note and meet me in the car. And they don't really quite know what's going on. They know it's something to do with, you know, what they did the night before and how they reacted. And so they get in the car and once everybody was buckled up and they were driving down the road, she informs them, we're gonna go to the grocery store and you're gonna go in with your money and you're gonna buy flowers for the babysitter. And then we're going to go to her workplace, and you're going to take your note and your flowers, hand deliver them, and apologize in person. And Andy, the way he tells it, he says, both of their children would have uh, preferred that everything fun in their lives was taken away before having to do that. 
They both pitched such a fit and did not want to do this, but they go to the grocery store. They spent their own money on flowers. They go, and they get in the parking lot, and his wife, Sandra, made them rehearse what they were going to say. Not because, you know, sorry, there's flowers. You know, that, that doesn't count, right? We all know that doesn't count. And so she, I'm sorry for, and then explain what they did wrong. And so they go in, and they said she didn't know this was happening. And the people at the workplace were like, what is going on? Because nobody does stuff like this, right? We're all just like, no screens for you today. No keys for you. No, go to your room. Sit about and think what you've done. We don't always parent with this in mind. But it does this beautiful part of, yes, adding the pain of consequences that we know needs to be there. But it also points them in the direction of learning how to repair what sin has broken. And that's not just something that kids need to learn in terms of, behavior that's something we need to learn as humans as followers of God as people who are going to interact with others and and what's interesting is there's a lot of us who get to be full-grown adults and have no idea how to make up when we've done wrong that's why a lot of marriages get in conflict and then one of the spouses said I said sorry I don't know what you want from me I said sorry aren't we over it I said sorry so it should all go away that's not how sin works you can't just say a few sentences and wipe it away. There's got to be effort. It helps us understand the cost of sin and therefore the work of restoration. And so, this might sound like a daunting way to parent. I understand that. It might sound hard and difficult and a little bit scary. And you might think, are you sure I can't just take some stuff away, give them some yard work to do, something like that. And yeah, you can. We've been doing it for a long time as parents. And it works to a certain extent, but I think we are missing a lot when we don't do discipline the way our God does discipline. I think we are doing a disservice to our kids and taking something away from them when we don't discipline the way God disciplines. Because it's not just punishments. It's not about just doing hard time. It's about truly parenting them to be better, more mature, and more empathetic Looking at the other person's perspective, how they've hurt someone, it helps them be more mature, more empathetic adult, excuse me, adults as they grow older. So, yeah, it may take some extra time. But yeah, Andy's wife that took her whole morning to get all that done with these kids because it's never as quick as it telling it in a story. I mean, you've got to get the foot dragging and the, I don't want to, I'm not getting out of the car. You've got to go through all that stuff. took all morning. I took some time to think. She probably stayed up late. What am I going to do? I feel so bad. What are we going to do with these boys? Took some time, took some worry, took some effort. But in the end, things were so much better. And once we understand the principle of disciplining toward restoration by leading to repair what was taken away or broken by sin, we start to see discipline in a completely different light. And again, it reflects on how God treats us. It reflects on how God treats his people. And you will see this over and over again throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament in how God disciplines his people is a way of restoration. Um, in the Old Testament book of Judges, it's actually a very frustrating book to read because um, as God takes Israel and he gives them this promised land. So Israel wasn't just a nation of people. He gives them this geographical place to call home. And so he takes them into this place with the promise saying, once we get into this land, I will be your God and you will be my people. And things are going to go really well for you if you just continue to be faithful to me. And they are awful at it. They just fail again and again. And so Judges is this repeated cycle of Israel ignoring God, 
God letting something bad happen to them to remind them that they've drifted away from him. They get into this mess and go, oh no, we need help. Oh yeah, what about God that we abandoned a long time ago? I wonder if this is happening because we abandoned him. And they turn back to God, they humble themselves, they apologize, they worship him again, and then God comes in and kind of helps them sort out the situation. And then it repeats over and over again. So Judges is really frustrating, but what you see over and over again is God disciplining with the aim of restoration. And then Israel's history progresses, and it doesn't get any better. They keep falling away from God. And so at some point, God finally says, fine, I told you I'd give you the land as a place where I would be your God and you would be my people. But if you stopped being faithful to me, I'm taking away this land. And at one point, God does, and he gets the, has a, a bigger nation come in and destroy Israel and conquer Israel and take a lot of the people and, and uh, takes them captive so that they live as slaves in other nations. And so these people end up living out the whole rest of their lives apart from their home, and they realize what they've done. This is what God said was going to happen when we weren't faithful. And they promised, they vowed never to let that happen again. And after that, They didn't always do it right, but Israel tried to be incredibly faithful to God. The Jewish people tried to be incredibly faithful to God and put measures in place to keep them from drifting away again because they saw this, God let this happen because we did wrong, and it pointed them back to a relationship with him. In the New Testament, um, Jesus encounters a tax collector named Zacchaeus, Um, and if you've grown up in church, do you know the little song and you're humming it in your head right now? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. What kind of tree was he in? Yeah, see, some of you church people, you knew that, right? Um, If you didn't know it, don't worry, you're not missing a whole lot, um, but that's the story. So he encounters this guy named Zacchaeus who was a tax collector, and tax collectors, the way um, uh, they acted in the first century was they would go around and collect people's tax bills for the Roman Empire, but if you owed a $10 tax bill, they would say, you owe $30, And they would give $10 to Rome and keep $20 for themselves. And they were seen as traitors to their people. They were thieves and crooks. And so when Zacchaeus has this encounter with Jesus, he immediately understands, I need to make right what I have done wrong. And he says, Jesus, I'm going to give back to everyone I stole from, but I'm not just going to give back what I stole. I'm going to give back four times what I took so that I can make up for the poverty and the damage that I inflicted on these people. And when he understands that principle of restoration, Jesus responds by saying, today salvation has come to your house. And so we have to be people who understand that discipline isn't just about punishing wrong. It's not just about creating pain around bad behavior. Because that's not what the gospel is. That's not what our God is about. Our God is about restoring us to him. Restoring our right relationship with him because we've broken away from him with our sin and our bad behavior. And he sent Jesus not to punish us, but to bring us back into a right relationship with him. And so I think it is only wise for us to treat discipline as as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles in the same fashion. Because restoration, reconciliation, redemption, that is the work of God in our world. And again, Jesus didn't come to make us suffer for our sin. He came to forgive us of it. So by parenting toward restoration, you're not only showing your kids the cost of sin, but you're showing them the heart of God in the midst of all that, the heart of their Savior. And yes, it's hard to do. In those moments, it's hard to parent towards restoration. It takes more thought, more creativity, more energy, more time most of the time. But the pain and awkwardness that is created in that discipline will 
lead our children to be much more mature individuals who understand the cost of sin and behavior in a way that few other people uh, will. And so they will eventually, even though they don't like that you maybe make them take their moms on dates or buy flowers for babysitters that they've been bad for, they might not like it in the moment, but eventually they will see the beauty of those actions and the love that you showed by teaching them to restore what they had broken. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this incredible call to restoration and redemption. We see that this is how you live, how you act in our world, that you did the work of restoration for us so that we might have a right relationship with you. You showed us that, that you didn't just want to, to add punishment for sin. You didn't just want to discipline us for sin, but you want primarily restoration for your people. And I pray that we would want that for our kids and so that we would go the extra mile with our discipline as we discipline our kids to, to lead them to understand the, the power of restoration and the goal of restoration, which is to make right what sin breaks. And I just pray that we would, you know, have, have the energy, the determination to do that in those moments when it's just easier to take something away or to hand out a consequence like being grounded or sit, getting a timeout. But we would actually start to, to try to connect the, the, the brokenness with the idea of restoration. So help us, Father, to not only appreciate the restoration that you offer and the goal of restoration that you are working for on our behalf, but help us to also be people who reflect your restoration in the world, people who try to live out and be agents of restoration as we not only encounter our kids and, and raise them, but with how we um, handle our own relationships with other people. So we're just grateful for this higher calling. There, there's nothing in our society that reflects this. In our cancel culture, you mess up, you're done. There's no idea of restoration. Our culture says restoration is a lost cause and, and that you know once you've done wrong, you're a lost cause. But in this beautiful world that you've created and the beautiful work that you're doing in it, you teach us that, that you can work restoration, you can bring healing, and, and you can um, bring us back from even the, the deepest depths of sin. And so I pray that we would be people who share that message in our world, not just one of, of punishment and pain, but one of restoration. Thank you for the example of Jesus that we can follow. It's in his name we pray. Amen.